welcome to The Conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and your patients. In this episode, the conversation is about minority health. Quality Improvement Specialist Kathy Ray leads the conversation with Calvin Robertson Jr., Vice President of Planning and Program Development for the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, and Dave Berman, Vice President of Harm Reduction and Crisis Stabilization Programs for Mental Health America of Indiana Director, as well as the Director of the Indiana Suicide Prevention Network and the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance of Indiana. Kelfort Robertson shares how transitions of care, COVID-19 isolation, vaccination fears, and lack of social support can negatively impact the senior population and how minority populations can become frustrated and apprehensive with or about healthcare when health literacy is not approached from an equitable perspective. He touches on the increased burden many seniors are experiencing as they try to manage their chronic diseases while facing financial burdens. David Berman joins the conversation to share his insights and expertise into strategies for harm reduction in our communities, mental health resources, and guidance for us to move forward after COVID-19. Now, let's get the conversation started. Hi, I'm Kathy Ray, and welcome to the conversation. Let's start with you, Calvin. Tell us what role mental health plays in the well-being for minority senior populations. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you for having uh, me here on today. Glad to uh, be able to uh, share um, just on this, uh, I think, really worthwhile uh, topic. I think uh, when I think about uh, minorities and just the history with mental health, um, unfortunately, there is a stigmatization, but I think some of that is historical um, in nature. And when I say historical in nature, you're talking about a group of people, particularly African-Americans, or you're thinking about your First Nations. Uh, where there has been a history of just trauma, um, whether it was from slavery or the uh, great passage from the East Coast to the West, uh, where a mentality uh, had to be developed and formed to be strong, to be courageous, to learn how to um, quell your emotions so you can perform uh, and do the task um, at hand or so you could just survive. And so I think a lot of the mental health framework for a lot of the spirit population has been survival. And so some of us who are in mental health and uh, wants that proactive uh, prevention, uh, that is not a reality or lived experience for many uh, racial and ethnic minorities. It is the whole concept of survival of the fittest. And so how do I condition my emotions and my mind to weather the storms of life and not make it to the top, just be able to survive, to be able to put food on the table, to be able to have a decent housing situation, uh, to be able to have some level of engagement uh, with my loved ones. And so uh, I think when we look at the context of mental health uh, from disparate population, that historical lens um, lends itself to some uh, important credence uh, that we as practitioners just need to consider because it's going to help us with engaging uh, the community uh, more effectively uh, and to help really promote uh, the need to rise from just the survivalist mentality to how can I now proactively uh, engage my own emotions, my own uh, mindsets, uh, so I can be healthier and more productive uh, in life and then engage those who I love in a manner where uh, I value their emotions, I value their uh, mental health, and I promote uh, their overall well-being. And so uh, when you look at that historical context, it's important. I think the other uh, part of the that, and David, feel free to uh, jump in uh, anytime, uh, but uh, we're tag teaming, <laughs> for those who don't know. Uh, but I think the other context is just looking at how we have evolved within the mental health uh, system 
particularly with uh, assessment design um, and how we actually quantify uh, and qualify uh, some of the uh, mental health uh, practices uh, with uh, many disparate populations. Uh, when you look historically at uh, instrument design, the surveys, the assessments, uh, the vetting process with disparate population many times did not take uh, take place. Now, did uh, racial and ethnic minorities participate uh, in the tools that have been produced? Yes. Has there been a consistent manner in which uh, when questions were posed and responses uh, given, was that done? Yes, but did they ask the community if the questions were asked in a culturally appropriate way or the responses to those questions actually re reflected a culturally appropriate lifestyle that they're familiar with? Many times the answer is no. And so when we look at uh, mental health and we're looking at uh, mental health within minorities, uh, even just the engagement or the access or the way that we formulate uh, certain prognosis, diagnosis, treatment methodologies uh, is can oftentimes be skewed only because the community was not necessarily engaged in the front end. I'm a public health pr practitioner, so the example I always give is dealing with grocery stores and supermarkets. Uh, about 15 years ago or so, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, federal uh, surveys that ask uh, nutrition questions such as, uh, you know, how frequently people shop at a supermarket uh, within there to get, you know, healthy foods. Well, uh, for many inner cities, a supermarket did not exist. And so you had this phenomenon where people answered the question <laughs> about supermarkets. However, they only answered it uh, based upon what was available within that question content. So the responses uh, was A through uh, E, and they responded a certain way, but it didn't reflect their social context. And so, yeah, they got responses, but they were not accurate responses because the inner city had more corner stores and things of that nature where people went and shopped and got their uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, but those answers were not reflected in the responses. And so, you know, that would be an example of, again, uh, that historical context that leads us to well, where we are. Dave, I would want to give you an a opportunity to chime in if you had any additional thoughts. On sure, uh, absolutely. Those pieces. Uh, thank you, Calvin. Um, so let me start by saying that um, over the past 10 years, you know, we're talking about older adults um, and specifically within uh, minority populations. Over the last 10 years, the number of adults who are 65 or older has increased by 33%. So by 2050, it's estimated that non-white racial and ethnic groups are going to represent more than 56% of our population. And of those, almost 40% 40, 40 are projected to be 65 and older. So basically what we're saying are ethnic and racial minorities will uh, that are 65 and older, it's projected that they're going to be the majority of the population by 2050. Um, our baby boomers are going to be uh, older than 65 by 2030. That's going to expand the size of the population. 20% um, of all residents are going to be 65 and older. So we really need to start focusing on this older adult population. Um, now, when you uh, talk about older adults and minorities, it's almost double whammy um, because they are two groups that are often the most affected negatively um, in healthcare period, much less mental healthcare, uh, higher levels of morbidity and mortality. Um, and as far as mental healthcare goes, it's traditional that um, you've seen lack of culturally competent care for individuals that are um, racially and um, ethnically minorities. Um, they lead to worse outcomes for those that don't even uh, seek help in the first place. And we need to change our approach. Um, Calvin had made a point, and I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, and I think it was related to, to trauma. So um, 
I've done a lot of training and interviews and presentations on resilience in the past year uh, in reflection and in um, uh, the perspective being COVID and the pandemic and that we all need to have resilience to get through to the other end. Um, but as far as minorities go, and especially black cultures, the trauma, and, and Calvin kind of went into this a little bit, you can't just get over the trauma. Um, you know, the, the uh, mindset that, you know, you have to be strong and you need to persevere is great, except when there's trauma involved, um, it's not so easy. And the individuals that need to um, do the brunt of the work, I think, when there's been trauma are those that have done the trauma, uh, done the traumatization as opposed to those that have been traumatized. So that's an area we really need to focus on. Um, and, you know, so David, just, go ahead, go ahead, Calvin. Can I, you know, just add to that too? Sure, absolutely. One of the things I would like to add is just that we're talking about generational trauma. So we're not just talking about someone was in a uh, accident or they were in a war and this was a one time, one, one period phase in their life. We're talking about trauma that has been passed on from generation to generation and to generation where people are carrying, you know, we're in a modern day uh, uh, dilemma with, uh, we look at law enforcement uh, and the treatment of, you know, African-Americans and other groups uh, with uh, just the interaction um, and so the fear that, you know what, I may send my son out and he may not return. Other population groups may not have to uh, deal with that, but that's an additional stressor uh, they, that, that's being done because of the current social context. So when we talk about uh, trauma, uh, we're not just talking about a point in time or a single period of time. We're talking about generations where there has been this social conditioning. When you step out of house, this is how you act. This is how you behave. This is what you're supposed to uh, do. If you have certain types of interactions, this is how you uh, respond to it. And so some of the uh, responses where, uh, you know, we as health practitioners want to say, you know what, you need to own your feelings. It's okay to uh, express them, to get them out. That's not always a live reality uh, for uh, a lot of groups, and particularly uh, seniors who may even be challenged with one, identifying what the feeling or emotion is, because growing up, that may not have been something that was even allowable. When I think about my grandparents, it was uh, you speak when you're spoken to. Um, and so that vehicle to want to express yourself or give you a place where it's healthy to get out what was on the inside just did not exist <laughs> for my my grandparents and uh and many other grandparents uh who tell many stories about uh the up, upbringing so it's not just that trauma existed but the vehicle uh to be able to discuss the trauma uh was not always in place and the old adage, what goes on in the house stays in the house, that was for many seniors a live reality. And so the thought of being able to go outside of your home for help was unconscionable because people are not supposed to know your business. And so uh, if, the, if trauma is existing, uh, then what's the vehicle for uh, getting it out other than to talk to some of the other folks who is just as traumatized as you living in your household? So I just want to highlight uh, that because uh, there's a compounding of that uh, for different groups. For Hispanic Latinos, it's the whole documentation, the immigration, um, the introduction to a whole new culture, the concept of acculturation versus assimilation and whether or not it's okay to embrace uh, and maintain your cultural uh, practices in this new social context, or do I need to give some up and what do I teach uh, my uh, children? And because uh, there's a phenomenon where so many grandparents are now being asked to take care of uh, 
their children, you there's this tug of war about what to keep and what not. And so when we again talk about uh, trauma is uh, looking at it from that uh, multiplicity of lens. I'm going to give it back to you, David. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point, Calvin. Um, I mean, it's it's experienced cumulative ra uh, race related stressors and it negatively impacts um, everyone's physical and mental health that is in a uh, ethnic or racial minority. Um, and especially when you're older, um, you've had a lifetime of experience and it, it truly is accumulated over an individual's lifetime. It's, it's literally stored in memory and you actually relive that trauma with every social injustice, every racist, every discriminatory experience. And, um, you know, we need individuals that are mental health practitioners that are culturally competent. Um, we need to make sure that our professionals are equipped and empathetic and non-judgmental and actually able to understand, relate and properly diagnose everyone that uh, that walks into their office. So I am you could check off every privilege box for me other than a, a one percenter. Um, but I think that, you know, I'm an educated guy uh, like Calvin. I have uh, master's degrees in, in public health and um, uh, public administration. And, you know, I am socially conscious. I, uh, you know, do a lot of reading. I am empathetic. But at the end of the day, I feel like without experiencing the same trauma that the individuals that you're working with have experienced without that that lived experience, you truly don't understand. You don't understand what uh, individuals have gone through. And um, as hard as we try to understand, I don't think it's ever going to be quite the same. And so ensuring that we have more practitioners that that are culturally competent, that are of the same culture, I think is vitally important because we've seen throughout history that within the healthcare system, um, there's just a truly discrimination that whether it's intentional or unintentional, um, it is there and it affects the quality of care that minority populations receive. Um, it, there are implications for the mental health of all of these individuals, uh, everything from how uh, healthcare professionals are less likely to identify severity of depression among minority patients versus white patients, um, or false assumptions that mental health needs are less prevalent, or um, that, uh, you know, there, I think Calvin had mentioned as far as getting community input, he's absolutely right. Um, none of the screening questions are culturally competent from the perspective that there were actually um, individuals within those communities that provided input. Um, minority populations are less likely to participate in clinical trials and all of our body chemistries are very, very different. Um, you know, everybody's heard of the, the Ambien, sleepwalking, um, doing all the, the really wacky things when people take Ambien um, as far as side effects go. And women tend to have more of those side effects. And if you look at the clinical studies, significantly more men participated in those clinical studies and women metabolize Ambien very differently. It's the same thing, whether we're talking about um, ethnic and minority populations or gender, whatever it is, we all have uh, different body chemistries uh, just based on genetics. And so when you're working with individuals um, and prescribing medications that they did not have an opportunity to um, to actually test and, and see those side effects, you're going to have a problem um, all the time. And it's something that we really need to focus on. We really need to change as a society. Now, I'll toss David, it back to you, Calvin. <laughs> I was going to say, I would like to, you know, uh, continue on with that training thought. And, you know, I am a trainer as well. And I think, you know, we try to solve a lot of these social ills uh, through a boardroom or conference table 
approach, but you know, my recommendation is what does your dinner table look like? What does your breakfast table look like? What does your lunch table look like? Is there is an, an intentional engagement personally uh, to get capture the stories of folks who are from other racial ethnic groups uh, just in your uh, personal domain? Because a lot of uh, these institutional proce uh, processes or even these uh, systematic uh, challenges uh, that uh, that are discriminatory in practice came from people. It's not like the system exists and then people came. It was people existed and then a system arose out of the lived experience of the, the folks who are, are in them. And so I think, you know, we we have a lot of credence on, hey, you need to get trained and develop in this, but I, I think we have to own it a little bit more than just this is a professional way to respond. I think there has to be a personal response as well. And so, you know, I always encourage folks diversify your uh, social tables and you can get a real uh, education because even at the professional uh, table, you're only going to get so much. Uh, but in the uh, personal, you're going to really get the context of what's going on in the life uh, of someone because th the sharing and the amount uh, will be different. But to that end, you know, um, there's a tr uh, publication um, by the Office of Minority Health uh, that uh, called CLADS, which is Culturally Linguistically Appropriate Standards. And one of the things I like about it is that it actually gives recommendation from your governance all the way to your frontline worker about things to consider in practice. And I think, you know, when it comes to us who's on the boots on the ground, having that wide array of uh, lenses and levels to engage is important. So at the governance level, it highlights that, you know, it's important um, for strategic focus to and when we say strategic focus, I'm talking about your strategic plan should include diversity, inclusion, um, and equity as part of one of the goals and or objectives within that plan. But it then also says, put your money where your mouth is. Don't just say that you're interested in this subject matter, uh, but then you don't have funding to support the training, the professional development, to support some uh, support the evaluation, to make sure that things are being done in a culturally uh, engaging way or the innovation of programs and new initiative that may better address this. And, you know, it's one thing to say it, it's one thing to put resources behind it and make sure it's done. But it's also making sure that those board of directors, board of managers, uh, they're trained just like frontline staff. Uh, what happens in a lot of organizations that the training only happens with the people who engages the people, but they don't make the decision. It's the people at the governance level. And so this provides some insight about how an organization can really create the movement and momentum of providing the cultural competent uh, care uh, by looking at an infrastructure where it's touched at all levels. And then it talks about management and staff and things that can be done, uh, whether it's professional development, whether it's performance evaluation, whether it's um, uh, looking at uh, some of the activities of community, community engagement that's conducted by staff to ensure that community lenses are incorporated into practice, or even looking at HR policies and procedures to make sure uh, that they are itself culturally competent, uh, even for the staff. Um, you know, I was in a meeting one time and the guy was Jewish and and he said, you know what, it's interesting that we're having the discussion about this topic, but we're having a meeting on Rosh Hashanah, which is one of the most important Jewish holidays. And so we as the practitioners and we even as leaders in DEI uh, are scheduling uh, meetings on days like that, we just completely dismissed this whole group of people. So uh, it goes into uh, some depth about, you know, uh, recommendations about how to do it at the staff level. And then it talks about marketing and communications and how to engage or create community advisory boards to make sure uh, that that input. And so when we talk about seniors, that's very important, uh, especially minority seniors, because the 
culture of the day uh, may be starkly different. An example I uh, always like to give is just how you engage seniors. Uh, I grew up and many uh, minorities grew up that anytime you engage someone that's older, it's always a Mrs. or ma'am is never first name. Uh, but we are in a culture today that calling an adult by the first name is fine. It, it is a common uh, practice, uh, but it could be offensive uh, when dealing with senior populations. And so uh, it's important just again to note that and to come into asking, you know what, what is your preferred way of uh, engagement? It creates a whole, it tears down a whole lot of barriers and walls. Uh, we always talk about first impressions. That's the first impression you want to make sure um, uh, that you have because it's going to dictate how much information you get from the client uh, regarding their health and well-being, regarding their mental health, how much disclosure they're going to give you uh, regarding depression, anxiety, or any other uh, gambit of their emotions uh, that they want to uh, articulate uh, in that particular setting. And so setting that tone um, in the initial engagement becomes uh, critically uh, important. And then also um, uh, with the training, also uh, identifying, um, uh, you know, resources uh, like uh, faith grace groups, pastors or spiritual leaders who uh, can serve as a gatekeeper. Uh, so I mentioned class. The other one I would uh, highlight is just uh, just bias, uh, implicit bias. Um, I think more uh, practitioners just need to understand we all have it. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't matter what racial or ethnic group you're part of. We all intrinsically grow up and have a secondhand, firsthand response to OK, if we see this, then something else may be happen, happening. Example I give all the time, if you're walking down the street and the crowd is walking opposite direction, running towards you, most people just start going the same direction as the crowd. They ask no questions because their biases. If the crowd is running, <laughs> something is going on and I need to steer clear of that. And that's a safety uh, bias for most people. It's not about right or wrong. It's just uh, a something we have intrinsically uh, been conditioned to uh, respond to or to think uh, because of what's going on. And so we all have that. So the real thing is about how do we manage it when it's, it's not in a necessarily good context. Another example I gave is uh, if someone is in 90 degree weather, you see them. Uh, with a long sweater or a long black trench coat on, they got jeans on, the the whole gambit. They look like they're in winter, but they're in the summer. You know, most of us thinking, oh, something's wrong. Uh, we never think that it could be that they are battling with uh, a severe case of um, iron deficiency, uh, where you always uh, feel cold, uh, and so retooling things uh, and, re and managing the bias. So we're asking different questions becomes uh, critically uh, important. Uh, the other things um, I would just highlight uh, with training is uh, making sure it's more skills oriented case studies uh, where folks are able to actively engage. Um, and it would be really great to have a panel of seniors uh, where uh, staff is able to ask you know questions um, and do a Q&A and get their perspective about their lived experience within the uh, mental health system itself starting from just accessing within insurance to accessing it uh, with uh, service utilization uh, to even follow up because I think it would give a whole a great perspective of what's going on. We used to uh, travel the state and do town hall meetings uh, to get uh, information about addiction and and a lot of the addiction service provider experiences compared to what the community experiences were, were starkly different. And so the only way that we're going to make a bridge is to have the conversation, but have a conversation that engages one another with the thought uh, we're both learning and we're both going to uh, do some adjustment based upon the information uh, that we get. And so I think uh, being more intentional 
about uh, community engagement um, is going to be uh, critically uh, important, but also uh, engaging social supports. And so I think in mental health, uh, especially when you get into things like Alzheimer's, dementia, things of that nature, where social supports uh, play a big role, um, understanding that when we talk about culture, how to navigate that uh, is something that becomes uh, critically important because most seniors are not going into uh, certain things by themselves. Um, and, and, and that is directly and indirectly. Uh, if they don't have the person there, they're having a conversation with the point person to get a better understanding about what's going on. And so I think uh, the whole concept of literacy um, is something that's really important and social supports help uh, seniors with that uh, mental health literacy that I think is uh, a critical piece uh, to highlight uh, as part of uh, training as well, because I'm not sure that mental health literacy is something that's really tackled um, directly in a lot of uh, training modalities, but I think because of where we are, it's becoming critically uh, important. And last but not least, and I'm going to uh, give you an opportunity to speak to some of these things too, David, is uh, pharmacy and engaging the pharmacy community. A lot of seniors talk to their pharmacists because they're on a lot of medications. And, and I'm not sure, uh, particularly in the realm of mental health, uh, that uh, we have looked at pharmacists as partners uh, in prevention and management and treatment, but I think more needs to be explored about how we can utilize uh, uh, the um, area of pharmacy and engaging senior communities uh, just in taking care of their mental health well, well-being, uh, getting them to uh, maybe do some um, short screening types of questions as they are um, filling prescriptions and things of that nature. Uh, but I think uh, in, a better engagement of the pharmacists um, as allies in this mental health endeavor, uh, particularly with senior populations, because many uh, trust uh, their pharmacists because they see them, they build relationships with them. Uh, it's going to be critically uh, important on the go for basis. So I'm going to tag team with you, David, and see what else you have to add or Calvin, this is Kathy. Can I interrupt for just a oh, moment? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> You have mentioned such wonderful, uh, wonderful highlights, and I, I truly just wanted to share. And I don't know if you and David are aware that um, QSource has community coalitions across the state of Indiana. We have ten community coalitions right now. We are focused on the social determinants of health. We are focused on patient family engagement. Um, we are always looking for trusted resources, um, trusted and recommendations, you know, from the experts, which would today would be you and David. So I'd like to go back to your point and just ask both of you um, for QSource sake and for the sake of our listeners, what are some trusted resources that we could have um, available and to promote in our community coalitions for specifically those seniors that we are uh, working with through our hospitals, patient advisory councils, through our senior centers, through our food pantries. And when we see the, the signs and symptoms of the COVID isolation, the depression, the triggers that, that are happening, uh, what are some trusted recommendation source resources that you could share with us? Should I start, Calvin, or would you like? Uh, oh, I guess I can go ahead and start. I, I will say okay. that, you know, part of our approach is always to identify a community champion uh, with the COVID, uh, with the historical context of research or vaccination in a lot of communities, but particularly uh, African-American communities. Uh, that uh, is a big issue. And so having someone who has been through uh, the, the screening and vaccination process and being able to tell their story and uh, being able to, for the community to be able to identify with the story that they're telling, uh, the sharing of the apprehensions they have going into it, but then sharing of the experience they have goes a long way with garnering uh, community support, 
uh, to engage in the process. Same thing with mental health. I, I'm just not sure that there's enough uh, senior stories out there that's communicated by seniors or those who work with uh, uh, seniors uh, specifically uh, that the community identifies with is getting out and getting out in a manner that uh, people uh, really uh, uh, understand and can grab hold of and link uh, hold to. And so I think uh, that becomes uh, really critically uh, important. Uh, I also think the engagement of faith-based network um, are critically important as well. Uh, many seniors, um, and, and it doesn't matter it is African-American, Hispanic, Latino, it doesn't matter if immigrant populations, when I think about uh, groups like Catholic Charities or uh, Immigrant Welcome Center, the Refugee Health, uh, most of those entities I have uh, faith-based groups who are leading the calls and uh, getting people engaged uh, with the social determinants health, the housing, the employment, the transportation uh, for those where uh, they're limited English proficient, they get them in contact with the uh, ESL programs, English as a second language program. Um, and so they're uh, very uh, important and they're already branded in the community. Um, as someone who is helping the community and so making sure they're at the table helping to navigate uh, not only community but those uh, who may not be as familiar with that community uh, because what happens is is that when they're able to identify a person or a group uh, with someone that's already a trusted that trust is able to build over time and then they become a trusted uh, group or entity or individual uh, in that uh, particular uh, community. I already highlighted uh, uh, pharmacists. I will also say uh, uh, schools and particularly uh, folks like the ESL uh, folks within the schools are great uh, gatekeepers um, because they're already interacting with uh, families, uh, not just the student. Uh, and so I think uh, they are very, very helpful. And then, you know, your primary care physician um, is an is another great uh, gatekeeper because uh, many, even though they may have some apprehensions about the healthcare system, those who have a medical home and have built a relationship with their physician uh, value what their physician has to say. And so having a medical expert who can break things down and common nomenclature, uh, common language to uh, the uh, community uh, becomes, uh, again, something of uh, critical importance. And then um, uh, last uh, but not uh, least, again, making sure it's multi-generational. Uh, and so having folks uh, uh, that uh, reflects um, all of those who may touch particular seniors uh, as part of that is also uh, helpful because uh, folks always want to uh, see that they have um, allies in the struggle. So, you know, David, I will pass it on to you and see what more you want to add to that. Um, so, yeah, you make great points, uh, uh, Calvin. I'm, I'm looking through kind of and, and thinking about my list, and I, I feel like you probably touched on the large majority. Um, yeah, I, so I do a lot of um, a lot of training within the faith-based communities within um, all all religions and and all cultures. And when you look at specifically um, minority populations, um, the their place of worship is sort of all encompassing for all things in life. Um, there is a Chinese community church close to my house, and every time I go by, the parking lot is packed, at least before COVID. Um, and it's because they have so many um, activities and so many things going on um, that is specifically for their culture, whether it's movie nights or whether it's whatever it is. It's part of their it's part of their lifestyle, part of their their social networking and so when the uh when an individual's faith or a culture's faith and places of worship are so meaningful um especially as we're talking about you know minority uh, uh communities 
that is a great place to start. Um, and helping um, faith-based communities of all all faiths again, and and race and religion and um, and cultures understand that there is a difference between mental health counseling and pastoral counseling. Um, and so that's a great place to start as far as trusted sources go. Um, Kelvin, you mentioned primary care physicians. So here's an interesting fact. Um, for individuals that die by suicide, we know that somewhere between 50 and 70% of them saw some sort of healthcare professional within two to three weeks of them dying by suicide. Some sort of healthcare professional within two to three weeks. Yet, you know, when I when I do speaking engagements or trainings, I always ask, you know, just show the hand by by raising your hands, how many of your primary care physicians or nurse practitioners, whoever's doing triage for you when you go in for whatever reason, for a, an annual physical or sinus infection, whatever it may be, how many ask you anything about your mental health other than how are you sleeping? And usually it's under 5%. Yet 50 to 70% of people that die by suicide saw some sort of healthcare professional. So within the, you know, that context of primary care physicians, that, that needs to happen. That needs to be a culture change within healthcare for all cultures and all um, ethnic groups. I, I mean, just across the board within healthcare, but especially as Calvin was saying, um, within uh, groups where there are ethnic minorities and, and uh, racial and ethnic minorities, because that is a, a trusted um, uh, individual within within their life. Another really cool thing. So there's a amazing guy uh, named Lorenzo Lewis, who's out of Arkansas. He has um, a, a huge uh, countrywide program called the Confess Project. And what they do is focus on barbershops. And he is expanding it actually, uh, I believe, to beauty parlors as well, because within the black community, the barbershop and the beauty parlor is of cultural significance. And so many things happen, so many conversations happen within the, the location, the, you know, the barbershop or, or the beauty parlor. And so what Lorenzo is doing is training barbers on um, to be suicide gatekeepers and um, be, uh, be able to openly talk about mental health uh, with the individuals that uh, when they're when they're cutting their hair. Um, so it's looking for some of these these things that are culturally significant, I think, to populations, whatever that may be, um, wherever it may be, and kind of focusing on on that as well. And Cal made another point earlier that I just wanted to comment on. And I think it was, um, oh, you, Calvin, you were talking about training. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, in a lot of the work that I've been doing, again, over the last year, um, especially with so many of us uh, working from home, working remotely, really, really tried to emphasize work boundaries versus home boundaries. And so, uh, you know, Kevin mentioned uh, training, and I think cultural competency and focus on social justice and equity is a huge, huge initiative that's really, really um, become a part of the workforce and the workplace culture. And so we have all of these trainings that are going on. Um, you know, there's the, the state FSSA um, has created a um, several positions that focus on nothing but diversity and equity and social justice. It's super important in the state. It's super important within all these workplaces. But many people, you know, they go to work and work is over. They have these hard boundaries and they and they kind of go home and they're trained in one thing in another in the workplace. I think that um, that cultural competency and equity and social justice is a a life focus, not just about training in the workplace. Um, Calvin, you had mentioned, you know, expanding your your group at the table for uh, to be more individuals, um, uh, people of color or um, 
individuals that are, are racial or uh, ethnic minorities. And th that's, that's adopting into your lifestyle. We need to um, be communicating these things to our children, uh, to our friends, to our neighbors. We need to stop being um, uh, inactive bystanders and be, become active bystanders in, in talking about some of these things more so than just in the workplace. And I think that's that's really the only way that we're going to uh, be able to enable and, and adopt change is if uh, this becomes a cultural norm, uh, a huge shift in the way that we think and the way that we act in, in 20% in all aspects of our life, much less within the healthcare system. Wonderful, and you know, um, as you was talking, um, some other things, just trusted sources uh, for consideration is that there are uh, quite a few uh, community action programs throughout the state, uh, and they really address social determinants of health. Uh, they help with energy assistance, the food assistance, uh, housing assistance, um, and so there's uh, quite a few uh, seniors uh, that would utilize the, uh, them uh, to get resources. And so I think, you know, engaging them, getting them on board uh, with uh, mental health and uh, just being a, uh, able to engage the community uh, that we're trying to get to, which is seniors and senior minorities uh, specifically, um, is important. We have a project in motion, Calvin, that we are trying to develop a, a mental health uh, first aid um, questionnaire just for seniors through our area agency on aging. Um, we understand the the uh, is it persuade, refer, ask, persuade, yeah, QPR, oh, QPR question, QPR okay. question, persuade, refer. <laughs> right. So we're gonna we're trying to work on a tool for our seniors specifically. Uh, using, you know, motivational interview approaching approaches, using that tool as a guide, and then utilizing our area agency on aging uh, organizations, community-based organizations, because, I mean, they're seeing this firsthand. They're seeing the effects of COVID, social isolation on the minority population when they're coming into the food pantries to collect um, their their meals and to collect information. Um, on social programs, like you mentioned. So we understand that mental health and seniors, um, you know, on some levels has been addressed in the past, but currently uh, we feel there's a need, right? We feel that there needs to be a modification or an update to our, our assessment tools and what we're, what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis in the community. Absolutely, and I think when we talk about COVID specifically, the virtual world is foreign to a lot of seniors. However, a lot of service access is predicated on the ability to use virtual uh, or technological uh, environments, whether it's the web, whether it's um, uh, Zoom or anything like that. And, and a lot of our seniors are challenged uh, with maneuvering and navigating uh, those those types of systems. Um, now, I think, you know, there has been quite a bit of um, effort to uh, do some training, but I think there's still a, a lot of ways to go. Uh, I think the other uh, big challenge is the capacity uh, in terms of um, seniors um, having internet in their homes um, and having the capacity to, even if they have the technologies, to get on uh, because it may not uh, necessarily exist. And when you get into urban versus rural, uh, it becomes even more challenging because in rural settings, uh, the technological infrastructure is not like the urban. And so uh, there's some unique challenges uh, that happens uh, with uh, just the whole virtual environment uh, that specifically affects our seniors and being able to stay connected uh, with uh, loved ones um, as well as connected to the services that they uh, so critically uh, need and to stay abreast of. And so, you know, as you're you're talking, 
uh, about the uh, COVID and the COVID and isolation. I think, you know, a part of the isolation has been just the vehicle that we have been forced to have to use uh, to stay connected um, uh, with uh, things that are needed and things that we, and the people that we care about. That, that's such a good point, Calvin. Um, I was reading an article last week about the digital divide and what that looks like with um, both um, racial and ethnic minorities and older adults. And I think it was like 65% of Black Americans were less likely to have home broadband services um, and only... 59 of all adults 65 and older for all races and ethnicities have access to uh, home broadband services. And so when that's a mechanism for connectivity and a way to um, to uh, keep in contact with uh, and socialize when we're social distancing, that's very, very challenging. Um, and then you throw in um, things like uh, going back to to faith and places of worship, um, when you have populations that are, um, and black adults have um, a higher prevalence to be attached to a religious institution um, than any other demographic, whether it be age or, or racial or, or ethnic. And their, their older adults are very plugged in to their churches. They have enduring relationships within that church and they receive social supports. And um, it's a sense of purpose. And with COVID and social distancing, there are many individuals that, um, you know, that is their, their source of support. And when you're not able to go to church or you're not able in, in any context to interact with friends or family or social groups, um, that further isolates folks. Um, I also wanted to comment, I love that we're talking about social determinants of health. I am, uh, as a public health guy like, like Calvin, I am a strong proponent of a focus on social determinants of health and quality of life. And if we did that first and foremost, all of these areas that we are focusing on wind up being side effects of ultimately creating a, um, a society that is healthy and happy and uh, in which there is equity and social justice. And oh, by the way, the prevalence of suicide has significantly dropped. And oh, by the way, the prevalence of domestic violence and sexual assault and um, incarceration rate of young black males and um, the uh, criminalization of, uh, of um, substance use, uh, criminalization versus treatment significantly shifts. So I love the approach and I wish um, more individuals and more entities would have a stronger focus on, on the social determinants of health because that really drives who we are. Um, it drives connectivity and connectivity in my mind is everything. Um, being connected within our communities. Um, I feel if we were more connected whether it's neighbor to neighbor or within the workplace or even within our families, we would be so much better off. So I'm I'm a huge proponent of uh, of stronger focus on social determinants of health. And, and you know, as you was talking about the social determinants of health, I was just thinking about how many of our seniors, uh, our parents, again, uh, being grandparents and just looking at uh, education, what has happened uh, as a result of COVID, a lot of schools went virtual. Um, and so if you are a grandparent and you've been out of school for a moment and the methodologies of teaching has changed and now you are being asked to navigate your grandchild or to participate in this now virtual environment increases anxieties and the stress let alone the fact that you have to help motivate <laughs> your child, your grandchild to even want to engage in the process in some instances because some folks are just not audiovisual learners like that. They, they don't learn through that mechanism as much. It's the in-person uh, that they're learning or a certain attention uh, that they get 
uh, from their teacher, but when you have the virtual mo modality of education, it creates this increased stress. And when you are a senior trying to help in that educational endeavor of your kid, it further exacerbates, you know, frustration. It may further enhance depression and other uh, things that uh, may be gr uh, grappled with. Along with the fact that, you know, I have a grandchild and I'm on a fixed income and, you know, for instance, if they're in foster care uh, currently uh, or previously that there was not a setup where they would get a financial remuneration for taking in their grandchild. I know that we were trying to work through that as a state, uh, but typically that didn't happen. So that became I need to now further split my income up even the more to now help out with uh, my grandchild. So when we're, we're talking about social determinants of health, I think it's also uh, important to understand for some seniors, uh, when we're talking about access uh, services and accessing um, or having what is needed to really live life is, is further um, lessened uh, because there's more uh, responsibilities uh, that's coming their way. Some anticipated, some an unanticipated, but uh, it's part of their uh, lived reality. So I did want to share that as you was talking about that. You know, and there's, you, you made me think of one one more point that I'll make, and I see we're probably close to time, um, but yeah. with, with um, within, uh, communities where grandparents are raising their grandchildren, you know, implicit bias is kind of comes in, in all directions. We, and we bring that bias to uh, everything. You know, we, it, it is um, adapted within our life, uh, who we are, what we think, our perceptions, because our perception is our reality, not necessarily truth. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's true, it's what we believe, it's what we've been, been taught. And I was doing a training for a suicide prevention training uh, uh, within the collegiate environment. And I had a, a young man that um, was on staff and I can't remember which, which college. And we were talking about um, stigma and how within um, various cultures, uh, specifically within black and um, uh, brown cultures, there is a lot of stigma around mental health and mental illness specifically and how it's not talked about. And, you know, Calvin, you sort of mentioned this uh, before, but um, when you look at stigma as a barrier and, and totally I am on board with the fact that um, part of the stigma is that, uh, or part of the, uh, the, the fact that the stigma is perpetuated is that our healthcare system is not culturally competent. And there's lots of mistrust that goes back generations. Um, but when you're talking about grandparents raising children that have experienced so much more of that mistrust that lived through um, the Tuskegee experiments that uh, that saw all of the uh, the, the disparity um, and they're passing this on to their grandchildren because of their experience, you almost have this skip a generation of, of starting all over again with kind of that that stigma and that implicit bias and that and that mistrust. And he, uh, you know, this this uh, young adult um, uh, brought this up and, you know, he, he made the comment that it's, you know, in retrospect, thinking about some of the things that his grandparents um, really stored to the really tried to instill in him were based on their life experience and their bias. And he had to um, really do a lot of soul searching and um, research and have conversations um, himself to kind of uh, take a look at some of that and dispel some of the things that um, they were they were saying um, that were based on their experience. And so, again, my, my point just being that um, when you have uh, cultures in which there are um, you know, grandparents that are raising kids or, um, you know, uh, expanded families where within the same household, you might have three generations. Um, it's very easy, I think, to perpetuate some of those those stigmas and some of those beliefs. Thank you both so much. And we will go ahead and wrap up. Thank you for joining the conversation. 
If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org slash conversation podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Content does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.